I don't speak in E-Prime. I've been writing in E-Prime a lot lately, but uh, I've written two books in E-Prime and most of my recent articles in E-Prime. Uh, I haven't yet learned to speak E-Prime. So if you hear an is now and then, none of us are perfect. Yeah, there, was, there was another lapse. There was an R in there. The map is not the territory. Welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press, publisher of the works of Robert Anton Wilson and other adventurous thinkers. My name is Mike Gathers, and I'll be your host on this journey. Over the course of this podcast, we'll be taking a deep dive into the lives and ideas of the writers, philosophers, mystics, conspiracy theorists, scientists, and total kooks who influenced and inspired Bob throughout his incredible exploration into the nature of reality. Today's global community is faced with the same, if not more, division, confusion, and paranoia than during the 70s and Nixon's counter-revolution when Bob first wrote about Chapel Perilous. Nearly 50 years later, and that much closer to environmental catastrophe, Bob's lessons on model agnosticism seem more important than ever. We will follow Bob, or more specifically, 24 Bobs, through the world of ideas as he laid them out in the Cosmic Trigger series letting each subject and thesis build on the next until we all hopefully gain a little insight into the beautiful, hilarious, adventurous, and erotic worldviews of Robert Anton Wilson, and possibly a bit of insight into our own Chapel Perilous. Our journey will, to quote Bob, feature double and triple agents, UFOs, possible presidential assassination plots, the enigmatic symbols on the dollar bill, messages from Sirius, pancakes from God knows where, the ambiguities of Aleister Crowley, some mysterious hawks that follow Yuri Geller around, futurists, immortalists, plans to leave the planet, and the latest paradoxes of quantum mechanics. We hope you enjoy it as much as we have. We start our journey with Bob the Dogmatic Materialist during his time in the Brooklyn Technical High School, where he studied engineering in the late 1940s. One day, while browsing the shelves in the library, Bob came across Science Insanity, published in 1933 and written by Alfred Korzybski. He read the book in a weekend, a claim he later had to defend to others familiar with it. Although Bob admits he didn't fully understand Science Insanity the first time he read it, he knew it dealt with at least one question that interests him very much. What is reality? In fact, reality itself is a word with many meanings, a point which initially stood out to Bob as either too obvious or not obvious at all, and a point probably obvious to Korzybski considering he contemplated the concept in at least four languages. The ideas in Science and Sanity would end up being part of the bedrock of Bob's worldview, guiding and in many ways protecting him as he traversed the many trials and tribulations of Chapel Perilous. Aside from the philosophical influence of Korzybski in general semantics, Korzybski also led to Bob's introduction to his future wife, Arlen Riley, when she hosted a lecture on general semantics at her apartment. Alfred Korzybski was born in Warsaw, Poland, at that time still part of the Russian Empire, on July 3, 1879. His Polish aristocratic family worked as mathematicians, scientists, and engineers, going back generations during a period when aristocrats all over Europe were going broke and national cultures and boundaries were being created out of thin air. The emancipation of serfs in the Russian Empire had happened only 18 years before. 
Between 1887 and 1911, the number of rural primary schools in the empire quadrupled. All this contributed in different ways to the tumult and unrest that would characterize the era and inspire Korzybski's life work. At home, Korzybski spoke Polish, while he spoke Russian in school as the Tsar's Russification policy attempted to stamp out the Polish language. Due to French and German governess, he spoke four languages by an early age. Like Bob, he studied engineering, and when the First World War broke out, he served as an intelligence officer in the Russian army until injured. In 1916, he moved to Canada, where he coordinated shipments of artillery to Russia and lectured on the conflict. In 1921, Alfred Korzybski published his first book, Manhood of Humanity, in which he detailed his theory of humanity as a time-binding species, the idea that through our language and writing, we accrue knowledge over time. In 1933, he published Science and Sanity, in which he laid out the theory of general semantics. General semantics deals with humanity's limited ability to understand the deep reality of events as filtered through language and our nervous system, illustrated by his famous quote, the map is not the territory. General semantics is both theoretical and practical. From the New York Society for General Semantics, general semantics is non-Aristotelian system based on three basic principles. 1. Non-identity. Words are not things. Maps are not territories. Symbols are not reference. Perception is not reality. And there are no identity relationships in nature. No two things are entirely identical to one another. Nothing is entirely identical to itself because the universe is dynamic. On the subatomic level, everything is constantly in motion and in flux. Change is the only constant but our language, maps, and perceptions give us the mistaken impression of stability and stasis. 2. Non-allness. We can never say all there is to say about anything. A map can never depict a territory in its entirety. We cannot perceive all there is to perceive about our environment. 3. Self-reflexiveness. Some words refer to things, but there can be words about words, and words about words about words, etc. We can make statements about the word, and statements about statements, and statements about statements about statements, etc. We can communicate and communicate about communicating, communicate about communicating about communicating, etc. A complete map would include a map of the map, which would include a map of the map of the map, etc. And it would also include the map maker and the person using the map. Not all maps are equally valid or useful. Some maps are better tools than others, depending in part on our goals and intentions. Korzybski, motivated by the horrors of the First World War, hoped general semantics would move humanity and the individual in the direction of greater sanity. In 1938, Korzybski founded the Institute of General Semantics in Chicago, which still exists today. IGS, a not-for-profit organization, supports research and publication on the topic of general semantics publishes a quarterly journal, and has held an annual memorial lecture since 1952, featuring such notable thinkers as Buckminster Fuller. Robert Anton Wilson gave the Alfred Korzybski Memorial Lecture in 1997 at the Harvard Club. Given that this happened later in his career, this lecture combines many of the topics that had fascinated Wilson for the past four decades. Wilson performs in full stand-up philosopher mode, using general semantics as a way to humorously examine the 1992 presidential election. He takes special delight in describing how his own neurolinguistic imprints affected his reception of the Bush-Quail ticket. 
Today, I am joined by Hilaritas family members Greg Arnett and Eric Wagner as we chat with Dom Heffer from the Institute of General Semantics. Dom came to General Semantics through Bob, specifically through reading Prometheus Rising, a British artist born in London in 1978, now based in Hull, East Yorkshire. He is known for making anarchic paintings depicting human interactions with media environments and has worked with many arts and research organizations, including 2021 Visual Arts Center and the estate of Francis Bacon. He's a founding member of the Feral Art School, a not-for-profit community of professional artists and educators who offer alternative approaches to artistic learning and development, and has presented work at the Institute of General Semantics Symposia in New York and the Media Ecology Association in Bologna, Italy. Dom is a member of the IGS Board of Trustees and also serves as the artistic editor of the Institute's quarterly journal, etc. To see more of his work, visit ideasinthevoid.com or follow him on Instagram at Dom Heffer, D-O-M-H-E-F-F-E-R. To learn more about General Semantics, visit generalsemantics.org. What was Korzybski's childhood like? You know, Korzybski was was born in 1879, 3rd of July, born in Warsaw. And also Trotsky was born in that year as well. So, but Korzybski was born into a time when the last couple of years of Tsar Alexander II, who was quite noted as being a little bit more liberal-minded and wanting to implement quite a lot of change in the Russian Empire due to disastrous effects of the Crimean War. So he kind of initiated quite substantial reforms in education and the judiciary and the government at the time. But obviously, then he was assassinated in in, in 1881. So then he was succeeded by Alexander III, who sort of repealed some of his reforms, but was generally known as quite a peaceful czar. But Korzybski's early childhood is quite interesting because he was born into quite an aristocratic family. So he was entitled to the title count. So they were, you know, the landed gentry. They they had quite a lot of land, had farmland, property, which meant that they avoided some of the more oppressive elements of the Russification of culture that was going on around that time. There's a really interesting point that Bruce Kodish makes in his biography of Korzybski, that how at a young age, Alfred would have travelled in and out of Poland, but obviously Poland wasn't even registered on the map of the Russian Empire. It wasn't acknowledged. So he would have been aware of this kind of discrepancy of maps and territories at a kind of early age. I mean, it's a bit of a delicious idea to think that that had a massive impact on him and there's no evidence of it, but just that idea that he was born in Warsaw but would never have seen Poland on a map, at least for for, for many, many years. So uh, again, his, his early childhood, he was, I think, the sort of, parental relationships would have been as was normal for for that kind of family time with your parents was probably a little bit limited might see them twice a day at meal times and stuff like that so he had a governess who I think spoke I think French so he also would have been you know he was multilingual he spoke Polish, Russian, French, and German, correct? That's right, yeah. He had French and German governesses. 
So he would have become fluent in sort of four languages quite young, even kind of at the age of five or six. He was quite adept at management situations. You know, he described himself as a as a problem solver and a troubleshooter from a, from a very early age. And he came from a family of mathematicians and engineers as well, correct? That's right, yeah. So again, there would have been a, a good library in the house and the idea of talking about complex ideas wouldn't have been something that was alien to him. So... Was his first love engineering? Yeah, he studied engineering. So that would have been his vocation, not really his passion. Yes, Um, I don't think it was necessarily he he was passionate about it. Okay, but his engineering background certainly influenced the way that he thought throughout most of his life. It enabled him to think about human problems from the perspective of an engineer. For example, he talked about... The idea of if a bridge collapses, then an engineer will look into the structure of that bridge and how that structure was made in error or what within that structure failed. And he applied that similar kind of thinking to when he thought about human problems, but the the infrastructure that he looked at was language. I don't think he really spoke much about the Russian Revolution per se, because he, he actually wasn't in, uh, he, he was in America at the time of the Russian Revolution. But I know that he, he knew all about peasant life and sort of the plights of the poor under the Tsarist regime. And because, because he was a, of a noble landowning family, they kind of avoided some of the restrictions opposed by Russification but he was really kind of appalled by the fact that peasants were kept illiterate deliberately by the Russian government. And um, there was one story where, as a young man in, in Poland managing his family estate, he flouted the Tsarist law and built a school on the family's property and started to educate peasants. The government officials kind of apprehended him and, and sentenced him to Siberia. But it was only because his his father was of some standing that he managed to, to get him out of that. So directly, the Russian Revolution, I, I'm not really, I can't talk too much. There, there doesn't seem to be too much evidence about what he thought. All right. I mean, he, he would have had no time for Bolsheviks or... Um, you know, I think he, he saw communism as much as the rise of fascism as, as two huge problems that humanity's lack of ability to evaluate, to evaluate properly, they, they were the symptoms, if you like. Yeah. So what about being multilingual? So his being multilingual, obviously, that, that, so that there is... There's an essay by a guy called Robert Pooler where Korzybski is quoted in that as saying how being multilingual obviously made him aware that there's different words for different things um, in different languages. And so it made him aware at a very early age of the different structures of language, different linguistic structures, and also the notion that words don't mean the same 
for, for, the, for different people around the world. So that definitely did have a, a, an effect on, on his thinking in his formative years. I saw that he he did intelligence work during World War One. Oh yeah, so World War One. I, I mean, his his war record is uh, like something out of a James Bond film. So he he joined the Second Russian Army, and it well, in fact, he he was rejected by the First Army. He decided which side he wanted to support, and he volunteered. He went to the Russian Army HQ. He was slightly, um, he, he had hip injuries from falling off of horses. And on the strength of that, he, he kind of had a bit of a hobble and he was rejected by the First Army and sent to the Second Army in, in Warsaw. And it was there that he met quite an important figure in his life, certainly during the army years, um, which was a guy called Colonel Terachov, or Terakov, it might be who headed the intelligence department. He obviously impressed this Terakoff and he thought that because Alfred was multilingual, that could be really useful for the intelligence corps. And at the time, Terakoff was thinking of developing a, an intelligence cavalry department. So obviously with Alfred's history of knowing about horses, training horses, and his multilingual background, he would be a great asset. So he, he got a job. His job title was translator to general staff. And that was, that was kind of the first, his first step into his, his kind of military history. There, there was um, about 50 men in the unit, and because Terakoff was was impressed by Alfred and knew he could trust him, he would send him on special assignments. And soon Alfred became the colonel's emissary, which meant that he received a certain amount of deference and privilege that other officers wouldn't have. So, for example, he didn't have to scrub floors and um, he could eat in restaurants and, and stuff like that. So... There's numerous, I mean, a lot of the information that I'm relaying to you is stuff that I've got from Bruce Kodish's biography of Korzybski. And it talks about how he first saw action on the Eastern Front in kind of scouting patrols when the Germans were using the famous Big Bertha cannon, the Big Bertha gun. And it was one of Korzybski's main directives to try and source enemy artillery. And so they would find shrapnel and then they would work out the trajectory of, of fire and then try and work out where the artillery was from that. There's, a, there's an anecdote um, which uh, is, is relayed in, in Bruce's biography, which I think kind of shows... Korzybski's immense kind of guts and bravery and, 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 and also his fatalism in the face of the war. So he talks about, there was one evening, he was in a, in a group of about six soldiers. They were sitting drinking tea and smoking and a big Bertha shell landed right near them, almost close enough to make them kind of jump as it sort of, sunk into the land so 
Korzybski relays the story in a fantastic sort of general semantics frame in that he, he says that three soldiers straight away got up and ran. And, you know, that's a great example of what Korzybski would call an undelayed reaction, an instinctive reaction. But Korzybski already knew that they were far too close to where the bomb had landed to be able to run away and survive. So he just stayed seated and carried on telling this story that he was he was telling. And after about a, a minute or so, they realised that actually what had landed was a dud. Korzybski had kind of kept his cool, but but he knew, you know, he was fatalistic about it. He knew that there was no point running. But I, I just like the way that looking back on that, he was thinking about other people's instinctive reactions and how they were they were quite misguided he did a lot of kind of intelligence work there was another task that he had where he was training spies um helping safe crackers professional thieves to try and steal money from german safes and alfred's task was to help them to navigate uh, the German military headquarters and how, how to get out once they had stolen stolen their booty. He also did a lot of carrying around of important papers. So he actually became a target for German spies. There's another story where he, he kind of gets apprehended by a really attractive German spy and uh, sort of smells a rat straight away because this lady seems over keen on him and he immediately kind of thinks, hmm, what's going on here? So there's some great examples of his cool-headed evaluation at work during the war. The, another injury he sustained during the war was sort of in, in 1914 during a, a process of retreat he had to he was given the task of gathering all these intelligence papers and delivering them back to headquarters and so he had them all on a horse and cart and they reached a very narrow road which had some artillery sunk into the road and this is kind of it's kind of like a sword in the stone moment you you get this image there's all these other soldiers trying to lift this artillery out of the out of the ground so that they can pass. And then Alfred comes along and shoes them away and says, no, let me do it. And he's, you know, he's, he's not a big guy. He's, he's muscular and he's um, broad, but he, he's, not, he's not a huge guy. He's quite, quite squat, quite short. But he apparently moves this artillery, but he um, gives himself a hernia doing it. Um, so he's herniated <laughs> ever since. And and then after that, also it was kind of on a on a horse and cart. All these important papers on this battered old horse and cart, and they had to requisition a beer delivery lorry to get the um, papers back to the headquarters. So there, there's lots and lots of stories about his adventures during the First World War. So he did lots of other things towards the end of the war. He. He even developed a special kind of incendiary bomb when he was working in, in one aspect of the artillery corps. 
he wasn't doing that for long because then he was sent to Petrograd, which was the what is St. Petersburg. And he requested to join the heavy artillery unit. And he, he met another quite influential character in his life, a captain called Sabansky, who told him about a Russian military commission that was forming, but was forming in the US. So they wanted to appoint weapons inspectors to go over to the US and to inspect the exports of artillery that were being sent to the front. So Alfred immediately volunteered for that and he got quite a good deal as as they seemed to. So he was able then to sail out to America and he was given $3,000. And that's quite important because that was kind of what led him to the States. So yeah, then he, he was doing that he, he was doing quality control for Russian am- ammunition near, I think it was Bridgeport, Connecticut, and then spent some time in Petawawa, all the time working on his English, learning English and um, supervising stuff like test firing of ammunition and stuff like that. Then right towards the end of the war, he moved to New York, moved from Petawawa to Ottawa and then to New York and did some work in in a horseshoe factory. Uh, And so that was sort of 1917. So that was when the Russian Revolution was going on. He was actually requested to come back, but he ignored the request and stayed in New York. Skipping ahead, since we talked about some of this stuff before, he gave seminars, right, on general semantics through the Institute? Yes, he he did. Yeah, yeah. Many of them. Yeah. The seminars were kind of central, really, to his entire dynamic of not just having a a theory about the world, but also having a didactic that people could learn and, you know, to incorporate into their daily lives. And so the seminars, all sorts of people would attend the seminars Businessmen, artists, college students, lawyers, doctors, housewives, uh, students. There are some seminars that are sort of written about as being quite important, sort of like intensive seminars. There's one in particular, I think it was in August 1939. That was quite an important intensive seminar. An intensive seminar would be like a week of lectures talks and training in what he called extensional devices. Uh, I'll I'll go into a bit more detail about that, but there's a particular seminar in August where there are some key figures in general semantics that that kind of join up. People like uh, Samuel Hayakawa, who became quite a pivotal member of, of the Institute, and also wrote his own work about general semantics and also was quite a successful politician as well. And then Irving J. Lee, who wrote quite a pivotal work in general semantics, language habits in human affairs. And then uh, Wendell Johnson, who was interested in speech pathology, who wrote a, a famous book called People in Quandaries, all of those started off 
by attending seminars in general semantics. And also in that August seminar was William Burroughs attended and his his admission form was registered as, as saying that he was a student and that he was interested in the interrelations of language and cultures. I think he paid something like forty dollars, which was you know not not a not a sum to be sniffed at in in those days. You know it was a fair amount of of money. So the kind of training that would go on in the seminars would be training in the use of the structural differential discussion about extensional devices and semantic relaxation, which was a kind of a guided practice of silencing your your inner dialogue almost almost kind of meditative and that was something that Korzybski had developed and it kind of ran for a good few years but then it's the, the semantic relaxation became something that was practiced less and less within the general semantics community I don't know why that is I guess it's um just because it involved a certain amount of touching and and massage but that was like a regular part of the the seminars. There would also be one-to-ones with Alfred Korzybski, and he would call this his uh, laboratory work. There were two aspects of his work. There was the aspects of the training that he would call extensionalization, which would be aimed at getting students to think in terms of facts. And then there was the laboratory work, which would be one-to-ones with Korzybski. And around that, there would be all of the the training in the tools of of general semantics. You said that there was a sort of a physical aspect. Was that just sort of a relaxation technique, or did he have any ideas about muscular armature, as Reich would call it? Yeah, so, I mean, he he had a a good grasp of physiology, but he he kind of realised that it might be of use through having one-to-ones with students and seeing reactions on their faces and how if he touched their face, their demeanour just changed. You know, he looked into it. And um, one analogy that's made, again, in, in the autobiography by Bruce Codish is the sense that he would have known about relaxing tension through touch, through his experience with horses, he always said that you know one of the first things you do if you approach a horse and it's kind of agitated is you just really gently kind of try to relax it through touch and so this was an idea that he wanted to incorporate into his therapy if you like yeah i think he he kind of jokes that it was a way to kind of wipe people's opinions off of their face do you see any correlation between Korzybski seminars and the exercises in some of Wilson's books? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, there's a lot more humour in um, some of some of Wilson's approaches, but I think the fact that there are practical applications to the ideas makes them quite similar. Yeah. So, in the end, what do you think that Korzybski hopes? taken to its logical conclusion, general semantics would impact the world? Well, fundamentally, he wanted us to incorporate certain things into our everyday evaluations. And he believed that if we did that, then the world would be a, a saner place. 
or less unsane. So I've got a, a quote here, actually, from uh, Samuel Hayakawa, who I mentioned earlier, which it might be worth me just relaying to you because it kind of encapsulates a couple of Korzybski's objectives. So um, it says, uh, the modern habits of evaluation appeared to rest, he said, on three fundamental non-Aristotelian premises. Comparing the relation of language, as well as thought, memory, mental images, to reality, with the relation of maps to the territory they represent, he laid down these premises. One, a map is not the territory, words are not the things they represent. Two, a map does not represent all of the territory, words cannot say all about everything. Three, a map is self-reflexive in the sense that an ideal map would have to include a map of the map, which in turn would have to include a map of the map of the map, etc. It meaning it's possible to speak words about words, words about words about words, etc. So evaluative habits based on these premises, Korzybski said, result in flexibility of mind, lack of dogmatism, emotional balance and maturity, such as characterise the best scientific minds, at least their thought within their specific fields. So his main objective was to get people to incorporate these simple evaluation systems of evaluation. And he, he felt like if, if that's done, then the world would be a, a better place, a, a saner place. And there's also another nice little quote here in a short essay by Gerald Haslam called Korzybski's Quest, which was in one of the etc. journals. I'm not sure exactly when the date was, but he writes, the world crisis, which is unparalleled in the history of mankind, turns out ultimately to be a neurological issue. Dictatorships depend on training masses in undelayed animal reflex signal reactions although leaders reserve for themselves symbol reactions. A democracy should be based on symbol reactions which involve evaluation. He sought aid in developing a particular system to reinforce man's ability to critically examine his environment, pointing out if through a method we can automatically train mankind in delayed reactions, this will turn out to be a foundation for sanity and a future better civilization. So I think those two quotes give you an idea of what Korzybski's ambition was. Uh, there was another thing that, that I thought might fit into the idea of influence. So that I, I found a quote from 1922, which was the only thing I could find where Korzybski is actually talking about his theory as a whole and its possible origins. And he says, my theory is first of all entirely Polish. It is the practical expression of the so old Polish practical idealism. I see the Polish independence fortified by a new social, ethical, political philosophy, which as history proves is stronger than arms. I had this in mind from the beginning. So I think that gives you an idea as well of how, despite the fact that he would have been strongly influenced by the First World War, and certainly despite not being in Russia at the time of the revolution, 
he certainly would have had a, a strong eye on developments. He still had this incredible sense of Polishness, despite the fact that for many of the early years of his life, Poland wasn't even on the maps that he would look at or would see. Yeah, I don't think it had technically existed as a country for a while at that yeah. point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, he, I mean, it's quite a, a fascinating character, fascinating character. Yeah. Uh, actually, I've referenced it quite a lot. I have got Bruce's biography here, and that there are some sort of first-hand quotes, reports from a Korzybski seminar, which I could read if, if you think that might be useful. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. So his teaching style, it seems, was uh, quite unorthodox in the sense that some people, he didn't bend over backwards to make people warm to him or didn't seem to have any particular massive attempts at being charming. Uh, so some people took to his seminars and other people didn't. But this is a report from a seminar from a 23-year-old medical student called Goddard Binkley, who took several seminars in Chicago with Korzybski in 1942-1943. And he says, I looked and listened with rapt attention as Korzybski talked and gesticulated, absorbed in his every expression, gesture and movement. He constantly illustrated his concepts with diagrams and symbols and sometimes little mechanical devices like a small electric fan or a matchbox. His talk was punctuated with small, quick movements of his hands and fingers, pointing for emphasis, making quotation marks in the air, and most characteristic of all, indicating an etc, etc, with a quick ripple-like motion of his hand. He was a short, heavy-set man with a large, totally bald head. He wore rimless glasses with thick lenses, he spoke deliberately with a deep Polish accent. He conveyed great understanding, warmth and love for, but sometimes an irritable impatience with his fellow human beings. So I think that's, um, you know, that, that kind of gives you an idea of what he was like as a, as a lecturer. And it, it's also nice because it stipulates the importance of visual elements of his communication. Uh, and, and Korzybski would often talk about appealing to the eye-mindedness of of his students, you know, not wanting to be too verbal, too language-centric. Yeah, how much of our communication is not verbal definitely seems like it ties into general semantics. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And Korzybski kind of tacit, uh, uh, tacit awareness was a big thing for Korzybski as well, you know. How, how do you mean? So just just being aware of something, not necessarily putting it into into words, just being aware, you know. So who were some of Korzybski's early influences? They're mathematicians, they're they're philosophers, obviously Aristotle, Alfred White Northhead. You know, it feels like when you start talking about general semantics, you can just end up name dropping endlessly because uh, it feels that the influences are that widespread. But yeah, the Bertrand Russell and 
a lot of physicists and scientists as well. And Lewis Carroll. Yes, Lewis Carroll, of course, because the inscription right at the beginning of Science and Sanity is taken from the hunting of the snark. He, he picks it beautifully, kind of, I, I can't, unfortunately, I can't paraphrase, but he talks about a lot of ideas coming from philosophy being akin to this hunting of this mythical being. Yeah, there's a that's a really nice frontispiece. Yeah, I always thought the Humpty Dumpty chapter from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland was one of the best introductions to how language works that I'd ever read, really, because that's the chapter where Humpty Dumpty famously argues that when I say a word, it means what I want it to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Korzybski, how old was he when he really developed general semantics? Well, so he's kind of uh, settled in America. So I think he's he, he wrote Manhood of Humanity, came out in 1921. So he's going to be in his late 30s then, early 40s. Um, yeah, and he, he immigrated to North America because he was injured in World War One. That's right, yeah. Sent over to Canada to drum up support. He lectured to Polish-American audiences about conflict and he he worked promoting the sale of war bonds and then after the war he decided to remain in the United States and he became a naturalized citizen in 1940 I think but uh, also he had met his wife Myra Edgeley who was an artist a painter of portraits and he, he, he met her shortly after the 1918 armistice and they married in 1919, and they stayed together till the end of his life. She had a massive influence on him as a supporter of his ideas, a tireless supporter of his ideas. For me personally, that was also always interesting because I wondered what the dynamic would be in as much as that would have made him constantly aware of the arts and of creativity and, and, and of the painting, and, and often wondered how that sort of fed in to, to his ideas and how his ideas influenced her as well. So how long have you been a fellow of the General Semantics Institute? So uh, well over 10 years now, I think. And I remember a first encountering Science and Sanity probably about 15 years ago, having sort of done quite a lot of research into particularly European philosophy and then I can't quite remember who led me to Robert Anton Wilson's work, but certainly it was Prometheus Rising that introduced me to the work of Korzybski. And ever since then, I was kind of really fond of Robert Anton Wilson's work and and sort of recognised the influence of Korzybski's general semantics as a kind of founding bedrock for some of his ideas at how... how it's like a constant motif that runs through a lot of Anton Wilson's work. He was invited to give the Korzybski Memorial Lecture, I believe, in 1997, correct? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, and even like in quantum psychology, he does actually say how Korzybski, even though it has been mentioned a few times so far, but even when he's not mentioned, is a big influence. You know, he actually says that in quantum psychology, doesn't he? He featured in one of the Alfred Korzybski Memorial Lectures, which is a series of lectures that were started by the Institute just after the death of 
Korzybski, started by the then director of the Institute of General Semantics. So this is in the early 50s, a lady called Kendig, who wanted to remember Korzybski's work and get people together. And it was kind of a a dedication to the notion of time binding as well, this this idea that every year, at least once a year, there'll be this congregation of people to have a symposium, talk about Korzybski's ideas. And th- th- there's been some fascinating speakers uh, as part of the AKML over, over the years. That, that's something that continues to, to this day. Has the memorial lecture taken place already for 2021? Or No, there's, there's, there's going to be a memorial lecture in, in October this year at the Players Club in New York City, which I think is going to be something like the 62nd or something. And then that's followed by the Institute of General Semantics Symposium. And yeah, if you look on the list of of names of people that have taken part over the years, I think the thing that jumps out is what an eclectic bunch of people from diverse interests it is. So, you know, anyone from Gregory Bateson, a couple of years ago, we had uh, Corey Anton and Lance Strait. So we've had people from all different fields and specialisms, which I think is, is really interesting. So, Dom, one thing that I noticed when I was reading my copy of Selections from Science and Sanity, a couple of the introductions mention misinterpretations of general semantics. What exactly do we mean when we talk about non-Aristotelian systems? Yeah, that's a really good one. I think, ultimately, I mean, that was one of the things that first I wrestled with a bit as a concept. I think to I'm going to oversimplify this terribly, I'm afraid, but it it feels to me like non-Aristotelian systems are based outside of the is of identity. So they're they're not based on the predicate of identity. Uh, And I think that's something that really appealed to Robert Anton Wilson. That's certainly the, the, the thing that he plucks out a lot, the premise, the idea of non-identity. Uh, and that's also uh, the premise that things like E-prime uh, are based on. So a non-Aristotelian system is a system whereby there are not these binary dualities involved in decision-making processes. So I like to think, because I'm, you know, as an artist, as a visual person, I, I kind of think more along the lines of, well, if Aristotelian is white and black, then non-Aristotelian is all the other colours or, or grey, you know. That's the best way I kind of simplify it to myself. I did look over some examples of your art and it's delightful. It really is. So I I love the the eclectic nature and also just drawing in some of these ideas from the early 20th century. Would you say you're influenced by cubism as well? It's interesting you should say that, Greg, because I kind of think that um, sometimes I'm engaged in a kind of cubism of thought. Mm -hmm. So you know how visual cubism was very much to do with dissecting a a picture plane and an object, looking at it from different perspectives at the same time. I think I'm also interested in the idea of exploding that cubism to, to within the mind and having a cubism of ideas. So Dom, would it be fair to say that general semantics was partially inspired by Einsteinian relativity? 
Well, certainly at the beginning of Science and Sanity, which was published in 1933, Korzybski, in this long list of dedications, lists Einstein as one of the inspirations for his work. Again, it's difficult to... There's a, a brilliant biography written by Bruce Kodish, which talks about how tenacious Korzybski was in sharing his ideas with people that he admired the only anecdote I can kind of reference linking the two was that apparently Einstein is supposed to have said that Science and Sanity was a crazy book. Um, <laughs> so, so, but whether they actually corresponded, I'm not sure whether that actually ever got going, but it wasn't for the want of Korzybski trying. He also tried to correspond with Ludwig Wittgenstein as well, but was never able to, um, to, to get things going. Wittgenstein's philosophy would be really the closest thing that I could think of to general semantics at the time. Would you say that's fair? Thinking about the Tractatus, I guess they're both, what they share in common is that they're both trying to be as clear as possible. But I feel like, I mean, for me personally, I feel Korzybski's much nicer to read. Yes. (laughs) Wittgenstein gets into quite academic formulas and, and quite difficult language, whereas Korzybski will take you with him. You know, he still uses maths, references maths quite heavily, although his formulations are quite easy to follow. How does general semantics impact your artistic work? Well, in, in many ways, primarily through the way I think about my work and the way I evaluate what I'm doing, but also in a more simple way, just the element of Korzybski was always very fond of different aspects of thinking, different kinds of thinking. And again, I think that's where he and Robert Anton Wilson find so much common ground, because I think one of the things that I found really exciting and refreshing about Science and Sanity was that there were elements of Korzybski's system for want of a better word, that involved visual elements of thought and visual thinking. So, for example, he was very fond of using diagrams. We might speak a bit further down the line about the structural differential, which was a kind of 3D relief diagram that enabled people, was a a training device in what Korzybski called consciousness of abstraction. And it was this appeal that made me think in the first instance that his ideas would be attractive to to artists and they, they were tr- attractive to me. Yeah, so Korzybski, his work lends itself to being compared and contrast with other ideas. And certainly when you mention consciousness of abstraction, that is what Robert Anton Wilson writes about uh, the most in the first Cosmic Trigger. So mm-hmm. would you mind describing the consciousness of abstraction? Sure, yeah. That's another area where his work has directly influenced my own work as a painter, because obviously everyone's aware of abstract painting, and they mean slightly different things in these terms, but obviously that appealed to me as an artist, the idea of consciousness of abstraction. But ultimately, what the structural differential is trying to cultivate within us through using it fairly regularly is to be aware of how when we use a word he used to say when you speak you theorize 
any, every time you speak, it's a theory. And so consciousness of abstraction is a tool to help you understand how the distance between words and things is something that it's important to be constantly reminded of. He used to say a lot of the time, Korzybski, that some of these ideas, the central ideas of general semantics were so simple that it almost sounds like baby talk. But what was essential for him is that, yeah, okay, that might be simple, but the fact is that we don't incorporate that into our everyday evaluations. So I don't know if it would be useful for me to talk to you a bit about the structural differential. I mean, whether you might be able to get an image of, of one. I haven't got one here. But again, Korzybski, incredibly inventive. He designed it and made it himself. How to describe it to someone who can't see it and hasn't seen it before. Okay, so you've got like the top section is like a parabola shape with lots of holes in. And it's got a sort of broken line at the top. This is called the what is going on level or the WEGO. That's an acronym that Korzybski used quite often, was very fond of. And for him, that was like everything that is going on, everything that is going on at a subatomic level, what he used to call the, the dance of electrons from everything that is going on. Beneath the parabola, you have what is called the object level. So you've got the object level, which is a circular disk, and that is where we begin to experience. Okay, so that is when things kind of filter okay. down in our perceptions, and then from that level, we begin to use descriptions of our experience. So beneath the second level, the object level, you can see you've got the descriptive level, which is where we start adding these labels to things. And that essentially could go on infinitely because then you can have words about words about words about words and you can get further and further away and it can continue it feeds back into the what is going on level when Korzybski would use this when he was teaching but he would also talk about the importance of pointing when he was using it okay so not being totally descriptive just on the verbal levels so yeah, so we kind of end up in a turtles, turtles, turtles all the way down if we're not careful situation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the further we go down, the, the higher the order of abstractions. The lines you can see joining the levels, they are like experiences or evaluations. And the ones that don't connect, they are there to suggest the things that we leave out of experience. So we always leave things out of experience in our evaluations. Our evaluations cannot cover everything. General semantics, it, seems, it reminds me of Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. In that book, there's a concept of a profession called the fair witness, which they are people who are trained to only say what they can verify at that moment. Like if we were standing by a building and one of us were a fair witness and someone asked what color is the building, we would say, well, it appears to be white on this side because we cannot see the other sides of the building. Absolutely. Yeah. And and, and Heinlein was influenced by Korzybski. I, I know that much. And, and I think might have even, I'm not sure about this, Greg, but might have even attended some seminars. Oh, okay. So thank you for getting this started with me, Dom. I really oh, appreciate it. So yeah, uh, Mike. Hey, Dom. 
Hi, Mike. Thanks for your time today. You started off talking about kind of your brief definition of non-Aristotelian systems outside of the is of identity, kind of the non-binary duality. I'm wondering, where is general semantics today? How has it evolved since science and sanity? Is there anything new or is it just more about promoting the same theory? That's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, it's something that's central to our thinking when we meet, when we have symposia. And I think the the best answer to that that I can give you, Mike, is that the central ideas haven't really changed. But I feel that's kind of a testament to how resonant they actually are. I think a lot of people like I've just so I've just spoken about the structural differential and certain elements of general semantics. Now, you know, I think it's fair to say some of them can be a little bit um, it might date general semantics a little bit and and if general semantics was to do a self-reflective view of itself you know obviously indexation of things was important as one of the tools so general semantics 1933 is not quite the same as general semantics 2021 but the the way i think things have developed in an incredibly exciting way is all the different fields of research that general semantics now crops up in. So, you know, you've got economists, financial bankers writing books that talk about how general semantics can be used in their field. You've got a recent compendium called The Great Mental Models published by Farnham Street, number one in their sort of toolbox of great ideas is map territory relations. So I think there's probably just as much or even more being written now that references general semantics ideas. But the central ideas that Korzybski expounded in Science and Sanity in 1933, they still pretty much ring true. Hmm. They haven't been refuted. They haven't really changed. You can still use those as your founding guiding principles for getting into and using general semantics now. Awesome. So the foundation hasn't changed. Sounds like it's starting to kind of permeate out into other fields and influence different aspects of thought and and idea. That's awesome. As you were speaking, I was wondering, you know, we've had the 90s was called the decade of the brain. And so now we're on our third decade or we're into our fourth decade of really neuroscientific research, psychobiology. And I'm, it would be curious to me to see how neuroscience might be starting to support the ideas. And I, I don't know if you know, you're shaking your head vigorously, so I'll let you go from there. Oh no, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't talk too much about neuroscience, Mike. I'm totally out of my depth there. But One of the things that I think would have been very important to Korzybski if he had been alive today would have been that connection Mm. with with scientific evidence of the day because the science of the time that he was writing, Science and Sanity, was, you know, he talks about colloidal science, you know, the idea of things becoming mists and that kind of grey area between a solid and a liquid and different particles so he's very interested in colloidal science. Unfortunately, he passed away before science could could help him out. But yeah, I'm not aware of any sort of neuroscientific discourse that does further his his research. 
It would be interesting. I think we haven't quite gotten there, but I think we're getting close where we're starting to understand that every individual perceives the world differently, consciously and unconsciously. And uh, be interesting to get those two fields together. So you're familiar with Robert Anton Wilson, and, and I, I believe you came to General Semantics through Wilson. Is that correct? I did, yeah, yeah. So it, like I said, it was through Prometheus Rising. But right. again, you know, I was attracted to Prometheus Rising through the great cover by Stan Slaughter and by some of the illustrations that, w- that were in, inside it as well. Cool. And I was always interested, and, and I still am interested in writers who kind of attempt to serve different kinds of thinking, different aspects of thought. Prometheus Rising did that. And also, you know, the fact that it's dedicated to William Burroughs at the front there. You know, Burroughs attended seminars given by Korzybski. And then it was the, the chapter where he talks about the semantic circuit where he talks about time binding that made me think, oh, that's an interesting idea. And that led me to to read Manhood of Humanity by Korzybski. Nice. And when you read Wilson, do you feel like he's presenting general semantics and science and sanity pretty fairly or accurately? And- yeah, I think I think the fundamentals, I think he's really got them nailed. He's, he, 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 I mean, he, he read science and sanity like 20 times. You right. Know, um, there's that fantastic long interview with Robert Anton Wilson, isn't there? Um, Robert Anton Wilson explains everything. In that interview, he talks about how he read Science and Sanity about 10 times. So so he fully incorporated the teachings. So I think he's, he's very accurate. And, you know, I think he read it in his early 20s or late 20s. He also goes on to say in that interview how every time he reads social psychology or sociology, he sees the influence of of Korzybski. Hmm. I really see general semantics as like the science of the third circuit, the conceptual semantic circuit. There's this part about influencing perception. I think our language is so massive in influencing our perception that I just kind of all lump it in there. And I feel like it's that trickster and as you mentioned earlier the hunting of the snark and when i say trickster i think language is so innate that we don't really realize its influence on our thinking and so it's just kind of this invisible thing that until you start to really practice some of this read about these ideas and practice some of these things where you start to realize how language really shapes our perceptions yeah that's exactly it mike and that's that's why consciousness of abstraction is really the key and mm. incorporating that into your everyday evaluations and and knowing that there is this possibility that, that there are these pitfalls in language primarily the ears of identity which is a, a right. tricky one a sticky one Perfect. Yeah. So that brings us to E prime. And I guess I'm curious how E prime came along after Korzybski from David Borland, as I understand it. And That's uh, right, yeah. listening to my co-host, Mr. Wagner here, I get the impression that it wasn't so heartily and warmly accepted into the general semantics community. But I'm just kind of curious is where we're at today. I think people still use E prime within the gs community i'm i'm not quite so sure whether it's become more popular or 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 less popular but certainly borland kind of studied with korzybski and sort of devised e prime as a 
an addition to general semantics, a, a useful addition in, in the sort of late 40s. And I believe Robert Anton Wilson actually wrote a couple of his books thoroughly in E-Prime. Yeah, quantum psychology was one of them, and there's yeah. a, a few others. Just kind of switching directions as far as applied general semantics. Is there a toolkit of like where the rubber hits the road and where we can apply these things in our daily lives? Yeah, how do we take the ideas and put them into practice? If I was yeah. to, to just talk to a normal person, like, well, it says language really shapes our perceptions, and it's simple, but it's also kind of hard to wrap your head around the first time. But once you get that, where do you go with it? You mentioned every time you speak is a theory. I mean, that's a great phrase that reminds me, you know, I have to be skeptical of myself and what I'm saying, my perceptions and all that. How do we apply the theory? I mean, Korzybski wasn't interested in just offering a problem without a solution. Science and Sanity sets up a few different ways in which we can become much better at evaluating so one of them we've already discussed, which was the tool of the structural differential and how we can cultivate our ideas of consciousness of abstraction. There's also numerous what he called extensional devices. Now, I did talk about one of those briefly in the sense of indexation. So mm-hmm. he found it very useful to differentiate between different events and different things. So, for example, in a herd of cows, you might have cow one and cow two, rather than referring to them as just cows. To make a contemporary comparison here, with a date, you know, so we call it COVID-19 because it was first found in 2019. You know, so, and again, like I was saying earlier, with general semantics, 1933, is not general semantics 2021. And, and I think indexation is a really useful tool, especially for the sort of incorporation of the notion that everything changes. People change. So you might suggest that a friend that you knew 10 years ago is not the friend, you know, so say, for example, your friend Dave is not Dave 1999, he is now Dave 2021. And, and I think that helps you to incorporate the notion of change. Nothing's a static object. There's no such thing as an object in complete isolation. And indexation is a really useful tool for that. Gotcha. How do you personally feel about E-Prime? Is that a tool you've used? Or? Do you know, I don't think I have. Certainly not very consciously tried to use it. Although when I've been writing statements about my practice as an artist, I do try to Mm. uh, avoid the the verb to be. Uh, A lot of people, uh, you you alluded to the idea that the GS community were a bit kind of hostile towards it. I think certain people thought it was just an all-out assault on the verb to be. But I think generally it was seen as a, a, a useful tool. Yeah, we we get a variety of reactions in Robert Hanton Wilson communities. Not necessarily so much pushback that I see, but some people really latch on to it and become quite evangelical about it and and really kind of try to force it on everybody else and then the right the natural rebel anarchist in the in the culture kind of pushes back on being pushed back on and and, and goes around in circles. 
a lot of people seem to dabble with it and think they get it. And what I see is they get kind of a basic maybe logic position of uncertainty. And they they pepper their statements beyond E prime with all kinds of disclaimers, like it seems to me, or maybe this, or maybe that. And they really just go overboard on the uncertainty piece. I've even, you know, what we would call chapel perilous. I've found myself there in this kind of what's true, you know, anymore. If I can't trust my own self and what I'm saying, what is true in this place of uncertainty is, is the structures dissolve when I first started using the tool. But when I really committed and ground through it and worked with it for a couple of years, I found that beyond this general state of uncertainty and maybe logic, I've determined like this neurological relativism that we all perceive the world differently. And I can be, I can speak with certainty using E prime and I can apply that to my own perceptions and I can say, well, uh, this is what I perceive. And it's not, this is maybe what I perceive. It's like, no, this was my perception. In general semantics, in, in general, when you find a new convert, if they go into this uncertainty phase, but if they come out the other end, if you see people come out the other end with maybe less uncertainty, but more uh, neurological relativism. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I think the first things we, we sort of point towards are the, the, the idea of the consciousness of abstraction. I think E prime... Like you say, you, you really do have to study it and you have to you have to try and put it into action, don't you, really? You have to try and write it and try and speak it, which I think is can can be very tricky. But obviously you found it pretty rewarding. That sounds good. It was it was almost psychedelic in that it just really changed my perceptions massively and I started to realize you know, this idea of this concept of psychological projection, where maybe I take my own thoughts, ideas, and beliefs, and I just kind of project them onto somebody else and assume they have that same process going on in their head. To me, it just devastates that because you you really, after sticking with it, uh, and, you know, it takes a while to maybe learn some tricks so you can avoid the is and you get a few gimmicks under your belt and you start to get the ideas, but then it just hammers home this idea that, okay, this is how I see the world and I'm speaking about that. You can tell me about how you see the world and we can share notes and maybe come to some common ground or some differences. Yeah, absolutely. And you do, you do realize, especially, I mean, one of the things where I've, where I'm constantly sort of shouting, why don't they use E-Prime is in a lot of news. You know, I think the news would benefit incredibly from using, having having more of an an E-Prime approach. Oh, yeah. Talking about uncertainty, Mike and Dom, I, I would say that ultimately that Wilson's philosophy, and I'm not speaking towards Korzybski, but ultimately Wilson's philosophy could be summed up as question everything. That's your best advice. So I, I think uncertainty is a good thing to a certain extent. Yeah. And I think one sort of visual analogy I'd make is that the spiral was pretty important to Korzybski, especially in manhood and humanity. And that kind of suggests this, instead of this exponential line of progression, it's more kind of that kind of wrestling that you're talking about. And again, as an artist, one of the things that excited me about general semantics is this sense of how you build these epistemological views and then you destroy them as well. You've got to be prepared to build and destroy those, those new epistemologies. Yeah, the old uh, solve coagula process. Yes. 
So you, you mentioned Korzybski's first book quite a bit. For me, I, I, when I learned we were going to be doing this, and of course, I've had it on my Amazon list for years, I went out and bought selections from Science and Sanity because the actual unabridged text is uh, pretty expensive. But would you recommend actually for you know a layman, if they want to start reading Korzybski, to start with Manhood and Humanity instead of Science and Sanity? Oh, um, that's a tricky one. Manhood of Humanity kind of sets things up, you know. So in Manhood of Humanity, Korzybski's asking the question, what is man? And he kind of says that there's two answers so far, that man is a certain kind of animal or man is a mixture, part animal, part biological, part mystical, divine or philosophical. And he says both of these are kind of wrong. So this is where he really sets out, as we were saying earlier, the influence of engineering is very prevalent in manhood of humanity. This is where he sets out how he's going to approach problems of humanity. In kind of setting up the idea, he really expounds the idea of time binding in manhood of humanity. You know, he kind of views human beings as little batteries of energy. And it says how the energy of the human intellect is a time binding energy. He calls it a higher energy, but it's commonly called mental or spiritual power. But it's time binding because it makes past achievements live in the present and present activities in a time to come. I'd say that Manhood of Humanity is beautifully written. Again, it's easy to understand. Korzybski's a great teacher, takes you through it at a good pace. It's difficult to find now, unfortunately, but it does. It sets things up for what's to come in science and sanity. Are there other books you would recommend by other authors as primers before dipping in to Korzybski? Well, actually, to be honest, I think Robert Anton Wilson, a, a lot of Robert Anton Wilson, you know, I found myself quite prepared, having read mm. Prometheus Rising, to then go to Manhood of Humanity. There are books by contemporary authors. So Bruce Codish, Dare to Inquire, is a great one. And then there's Martin Leveson, previous IGS president. Lots of his writing is a great primer. And the current president, Lance Strait, has written pretty extensively. There's a lot of stuff out there if you don't want to go straight into a 900-page tome <laughs> mm, yeah, sounds like our listeners might be well prepared. So, Dom, while you're talking, you know, my head is swimming. I'm thinking about, you know, Rene Damal, uh, Magritte. And that's probably because you are an artist and I'm associating with how you're, you're describing things with how what I've understood of their philosophies. And, you know, Wilson is very attractive to general semantics. And I can see some similarities in between Korzybski and Wilhelm Reich. But I did want to ask, you know, how is general semantics viewed by the straight scientific community? Is it accepted or is it viewed as a eccentricity? Well, um, that's a difficult question. I can only refer to people who use a scientific method who I'm aware of. And for example, David Bohm was a big fan of Korzybski's work. And there's a fascinating book, which is the correspondence between David Bohm and a German artist called Charles Biedermann, where they talk a lot about Korzybski's ideas. 
Bone talked about them in wholeness and the implicate order as well, and also wrote a wonderful book on creativity. So, you know, if, if it's good enough for David Bone, that's, I, I think that's, um, that's pretty scientific for me. I just wanted to say thank you for your time, Dom. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Mike. So, Eric, I'm going to turn things over to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Dom, it's wonderful hearing you talk. Uh, I think it's interesting mentioning Wilhelm Reich that Martin Gardner attacked both Reich and Korshevsky as cranks. I think it's interesting you can see in the 50s with people like David Bohm and Robert Heinlein accepting Korshevsky. You see Korshevsky showing up in films like The Birds or What's Up, Doc? Whereas I don't think you see nearly as many university courses on Korzybski the way you used to. Going back to Dr. Wilson, I guess he first read Korzybski in 48 or 49, he says in the introduction to Chaos and Beyond, and then he read Science and Sanity at least two dozen times. One thing that really struck me hearing you talk, in 2019, a book came out called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And it seems to me here we have this wonderful panel of, of white gentlemen talking about racism, that Korzybski's tools seem like a useful way for, for combating racism. That so much racist talk takes members of the group and treats them, you know, all X are Y. All white people are lazy. All Americans are greedy. And so it seems like the tools, especially V-Prime, but all of Krzyzewski's tools, seem like they would be ways to dealing with this major issue in the world today. But certainly, I have not heard anybody on national television say, oh, maybe we should study Krzyzewski as a way of dealing with systemic racism. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's infuriating, Eric, to be honest. <laughs> you know, when you go to the symposia, you, you, you see people who are using general semantics in all these ways. And the Institute still publishes its journal twice a year called Etc., uh, edited by Tom Gencarelli. And you find a lot of the ideas in general semantics become very contemporary about that. I mean, even in this recent one, there is an essay on contextualizing monuments and movies, iconoclasm through the lens of media ecology and general semantics by Eva Berger. So Dom, you're a member of the Institute. What uh-huh. does that really entail? Like, do you go to the memorial lecture and symposium every year? Or? Yeah, so that means that I write papers for etc. I go to the memorial lecture and, and, and show work and generally try to promote Korzybski's ideas to anyone who will listen. And to that end, what is your best piece of writing on Korzybski and where can we find it? One of the books that's really kind of credited with popularizing general semantics and going to annoy myself here because I can't remember exactly when it was published, but I think it was the 50s, was a book called The Tyranny of Words by Stuart Chase. And that was pretty popular and did a great job of bringing general semantics ideas to to a wider audience. And when I first read that book, I thought uh, Stuart Chase writes beautifully and in a very engaging and, and simple way that talks about Korzybski's main ideas. But I, I do think that Korzybski writes beautifully. I mean, the abridged version of Science and Sanity is a is a very, very positive weapon in, in the arsenal. But I still love the weighty tome that is Science and Sanity and all of its 
introductions and for example the the introduction by Robert Pooler in fact is brilliant and where he kind of states about 25 fundamental insights that he feels are really important based on Korzybski's research. I mean, that is reproduced in the abridged version of Science and Sanity as well. I wanted to know, what's your best writing on Korzybski? Oh, sorry, my, my actual, what I've written. Yeah. After listening to you talk and getting to know you, I'd definitely like to read. Great. I'm pretty sure that on the Institute website, some of the things that I've written are available in PDF format. But also a good place to go is you, you can see presentations, all of the Alfred Korzybski Memorial Lectures and the Symposia are on the Institute of General Semantics YouTube channel. So you can actually watch us do our presentations. So most of the stuff I've written has also been a presentation. Splendid. But but my, my first essay that I wrote about the links between being a visual artist and being interested in general semantics was called Society of the Spectacles and also wrote about Guy Debord. And as I was saying earlier about this propensity for... It, it, it makes sense that artists should be interested in general semantics because of this propensity to build and demolish and build and demolish and constantly evaluate, reevaluate, and often artists do it through a material that is not necessarily words. So that particular essay that, that talks about that in a bit more depth. There was a particular piece of work I made in about 2013, which was based around the notion of a cinema. And it depicted like a cross-section of a cinema. And what I really wanted to try and do was to depict that moment when you come out of the cinema, you know, you're kind of readjusting, you've been absorbed in this world, in this theatre for two hours or whatever, phenomenologically you've been totally absorbed by a huge image and by a sound that's enhanced and then you come out and there's this kind of threshold of coming back into the real world and so I wanted to use society of the spectacle to kind of emphasize that notion of the spectacle and it wasn't an essay about sort of plucking out similarities between Debord's thinking and general semantics. It was more about this notion of, as an artist, you're constantly analysing the world through experience and building and destroying your epistemological foundations. Thank you so much. I noticed physical books in the shelf behind both Michael and Dom, and it makes me think about McLuhan's idea of the post-literate. In terms of Korzybski and the culture, I noticed that a lot of literary types, when they talk about the post-literate, they don't give Korzybski any credit for this. But I, I wonder, Don, what do you think about these new technologies and how does it change our relationship to Korzybski's thought? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's, it's one that's on our mind quite a lot as an organisation that obviously wants to keep these ideas relevant. And the, the, the best way I can answer that, Eric, is, is just by saying that despite the fact that the world has changed a lot since Korzybski's time, I still think that the fundamental premises 
our languages essentially still operate on the subject predicate and the verb to be. And I feel like whilst we communicate, in whatever way we communicate, general semantics still has important lessons to offer. But I think it's also important about, especially in our age, how those ideas are presented. And that's possibly the thing that general semantics is is really got to think about going forward you know how, how do we still incorporate and how, how do we still promote Korzybski's ideas in in a society where attention span is constantly under attack and you know the information age was swamped by images and moving images rather than having the time or the tenacity to sit down and work slowly through a fairly dense text. Thank you so much. It really interested me when you talked about Korzybski's Polish childhood that made me think about Chopin. Robert Anton Wilson talked a lot about writing a book called Tale of the Tribe, where he wanted to go back to Vico and Bruno, take it up through Korzybski into our internet age. He never finished that book, but he did publish a little bit of it. And I thought about, is that... In terms of, for a long time, I felt so disappointed he didn't finish the book. But now I look at it as a fragment, and that fragment is a work of art, much the way romantic composers at the time of Chopin would deliberately treat the fragment as a work of art. Until today, I think I really thought about Korzybski's Polishness, but that idea, uh, and, and it also ties in with Dr. Wilson, that he was horrified that the United States started having czars in our century, you know, drugs are, et cetera, et cetera. So, it, uh, you know, the geopolitical situation of 1879, unfortunately, still sort of shapes the world we live in. Also, you talked about Korzybski's interest in dates and indices, which T.S. Eliot emphasizes as well. I think Eliot would have been probably hostile to, to Mr. Korzybski. Do you know, if one wanted to buy a structural differential, is anybody making them? <laughs> you can buy them from the Institute of General Semantics store. In fact, I've got one hanging just here, if you bear with me for two seconds. But they tend to be, I, I, I'm not sure if you can still get one like as a three-dimensional thing. We had a science and sanity study group over at the Mediological Academy, and it struck me how many times Krajewski refers to that. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's printed on vinyl. And you can you can roll it up. So yeah, I believe those you know you can get those at the Institute of General Semantics store. Oh, wonderful! I, I've tried uh, making one a couple of times myself, but I'm not the I'm not the most handy with a saw, so uh, didn't come out quite right. You mentioned the challenges of of reading that big blue book of Korzybski's. Some people might see attention spans getting shorter as we move into our our current world. What would you like to see? Because I think Robert Anton Wilson has a lot of readers who have at least checked Science and Sanity out of the library or tried to start and become overwhelmed, particularly by the mathematics. How would you recommend that they get to the point that they actually can read Korzybski? Well, I think I do think that despite it being a huge book, the chapters aren't massive. You know, they're broken up into um, very carefully thought out sections. But I would certainly, if intimidated by the huge version of it, then definitely the abridged version, you know, is a larger format, less pages. And, it, and it, it's kind of 
concentrated Korzybski, if you like. You know, it's 100% concentrate. But it's um, certainly a less intimidating approach. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure hearing you today. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you, Eric. Yeah. I imagine it's getting towards your uh, supper time, Dom. It's, it's, it's closer to um, the England football match. I don't know if you guys okay. know. Uh, it's, the, it's the European Championships at the moment, and England are playing at 8 o'clock tonight. So, um, But it's only half five. I really was interested in what Eric and you were talking about you know, the media landscape of today and the political situation that I don't think we really need to get too far into. But, you know, Korzybski is just one of many philosophers who our society fails to listen to as a whole. A grand tradition of wise people who we all, like you know, some people really do digest their teachings or try their best to, whereas, you know, society is much more interested in whatever the Kardashians are, well, they're done now, but whoever the next, you know, whatever distractify that we get. I, I don't know really what we can do about that other than to just keep fighting the good fight. And as you said earlier, you know, being a part of the Institute of General Semantics is just proselytizing when you can. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think awareness of context is 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 something that is a, another really good idea that comes not just from general semantics, but it's certainly something that you can associate the idea of the organism as a whole in an environment as well. All of that stuff does kind of help me to tackle everyday culture. And as I alluded to a little bit earlier, how many of you? know people or do it yourself um, kind of shrug your shoulders sometimes and say oh it is what it is well you know <laughs> that 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 term just absolutely exasperates general semanticists because we want to shake people and go no it's not no it's after, not it's kind of it feels, it feels I can like- say this that after a year of teaching with the covid pandemic as a teacher I'm pretty tired of the phrase it is what it is as yeah, well yeah no it's not if you think that look again because it's it rem- an epistemological cop out it reminds me of being a kid and your parents giving you the answer because which yeah. has to be one of the most frustrating answers that you can ever ever receive exactly and it it kind of stops you in your tracks it means don't think anymore doesn't it it means don't analyze anymore Mm -hmm. and that reminds me of the the phrase by Korzybski where he says you know there's two ways to slide easily through life and that's to doubt everything or to believe everything either way it stops you from thinking you know so Korzybski uh feeding some of his students dog biscuits which as a person who as a child once mistakenly snacked on dog biscuits, it spoke to me. Um, so was that something that he did often? Was that something he actually did? Is that apocryphal? Well, a lot of people talk about that. You know, it's I'm not sure how it was originally reported. I, I, I think it happened and, and I think it would was a superb way to, you know, demonstrate to the students. It was certainly a lesson that they wouldn't forget. Uh, A great way to demonstrate to the students how we incorporate work. You know, I think, I think, I I can't remember off the top of my head exactly the anecdote, but I think, you know, he kind of said when he revealed the label, 
saying dog biscuits and some of the students started to throw up. Yeah, they got sick, evidently. <laughs> I think he, he kind of said, there you go, we eat words. We almost, you know, we literally ingest words. But I mean, as far as using it as a kind of idea of his character, you you, you wouldn't want to go to a, one of his parties after that, would you? <laughs> as a nine-year-old, I was pretty okay with it. I was a little... I just felt really stupid when I realized that these cheesy popcorns were not dog-shaped cheesy popcorns with a kind of an odd flavor meant for humans, but they were popcorn meant for dogs. So <laughs> it kind of strikes me as almost like a piece of Brechtian, like almost a Brechtian. Yeah, yeah. You know, getting, getting the audience out of their complacency and just like, actually, you're, you're an active participant in this seminar. Yeah, and I, I know that Dr. Wilson also talks about, you know, having someone run in and stab the lecturer with a banana and then run out of the room and everyone in the room would, for the most part, see a knife in the attacker's hand. No. But yeah, and I, I mean, Mike was talking about that earlier, the trickster, and talking with you, it, it you know, what I'm getting out of this as a Wilsonian is that Wilson's interpretation of Korzybski, while it might be a little unorthodox, it is, it's pretty valid. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think the thing that I like about Robert Anton Wilson's approach to general semantics is that, as we said earlier, he knows his stuff, he knows the foundations, but also I love the way he integrates it into his more creative manner of assimilating ideas, which is a kind of creativity that Korzybski doesn't display in, in his work and, and probably couldn't. You know, I mean, Korzybski wasn't influenced by, he wasn't around at the time to be influenced by beat poetry and uh, psychedelia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Korzybski would have loved Asin? I think, I think anything that could have possibly um, been detrimental to his kind of rationality. Uh, like you said, I think he's a, a, quite a rational guy. I think, you know, mathematics was the thing for him. I, I think another thing that I really like about Robert Anton Wilson's approach, though, is, is that despite being creative and fast-paced, I, I like the fact that there are lots of – he includes exercises at the end of a lot of his chapters – which kind of implies this, you know, there are practical applications of these ideas. I'm not just, you know, taking you on a trip. Yeah, I think that's useful tools. Dom, I, uh, one more thing I guess I'd love to touch on is is just how uh, general semantics shapes your, your art and your creative process. I love the phrase, the, the canvas is not the territory. Uh, and just reading your, your about me on their website talking about my approach to painting is to use it like a prosthetic to apprehend the world. Painting shapes your consciousness. There's nothing else like it for developing, molding, and pushing ideas. And you talk about the, the stooges and the meta narratives. And I just love reading all that. And I know you've touched on it here and there a little bit, but maybe if you want to talk some more about how general semantics in, informs your art and your creative process. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for looking. So, you know, it's always in the back of my mind. So, you know how we said earlier about Robert Anton Wilson saying that he mentions Korzybski a few times, but he's always aware of him in, 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 the, in mm -hmm. the back. And 
a lot of painters talk about the influences they have. One of my particular favourites is an American painter called Philip Guston. He used to say that when you go into the studio, you go in there with all these influences, and if you're in there painting long enough, if you're lucky, they kind of leave one by one and, and, Mm. and leave you alone. Well, I feel like when I'm making work, on a very practical level, I can have a bad day in the studio and just come home and think, well, you know, use a general semantics framework to evaluate my day, which Mm. just makes it a lot more easy to crystallise it as one day without being too analytical or going into too much detail. But it's purely that idea of, so the piece of work you spoke about, the canvas is not the territory, there was um, a piece of work that I made called Painting Etc. And that's another one of the extensional devices I should I should have mentioned earlier, actually, that idea of always adding etc to a sentence because there's that sense of you can never say everything about mm. an event. And I wanted to make a painting that included all of the nonsense and all of the in a similar way to how Joyce in Ulysses includes all the his narrative structure includes lots of dissonance lots of different narratives when you're sitting in front of a painting your mind's going all over the place and I wanted to try and incorporate some of those thoughts and ideas into the work so the piece of work is actually a film of a painting of the Tower of Babel, which has these thought bubbles flash up on screen. And I presented this at the Institute Symposium in, I think, about 2014. But that piece of film then sort of became a bit like a structural differential in the sense that as I worked on it, then I started adding labels to it. And I was conscious of some of that labeling. So it was a way of visualizing my thoughts about general semantics and also at the end of the day I'm thinking through a medium so whilst I'm not necessarily using language I feel like even though I'm thinking through a medium paint is actually quite a good tool to incorporate ideas of general semantics in particular you know non-allness and the idea of labeling things if you paint something you're conscious of it not being the thing you know, you know, the paint is not the thing. That's awesome. Thank you for, for sharing your process. It's it's fascinating to, to look at it from a different perspective as a scientific mind for the most part. The canvas is not the territory. It just immediately grabbed me and shifted me into a whole different place and way of thinking about this. And uh, it's really beautiful listening to you share your process, your artistic process. So Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to talk. The Institute of General Semantics is a not-for-profit organization established in 1938 with members all over the world. When you join the Institute of General Semantics, you join a growing community of people interested in approaches to understanding human behavior, especially related to symbol systems and language in our fast-changing world. The Institute of General Semantics is a not-for-profit organization established in 1938 with members all over the world. When you join the Institute of General Semantics, you join a growing community of people interested in approaches to understanding human behavior, especially related to symbol systems and language in our fast-changing world. Members receive the Quarterly Journal, etc., a review of general semantics, published since 1943. 
as well as special discounts on IGS programs, conferences, seminars, merchandise, and access to an online database of archive materials associated with studies in general semantics. Annual membership fees start at just $50. For further information, see generalsemantics.org backslash membership. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to visit hilaritaspress.com and buy all the books. Hilaritas has been methodically releasing new editions of many of Wilson's books, and each one has something new inside. So if it suits you, you can give away all your old copies, spread the good word, and buy yourself some shiny new editions. And if you haven't already, check out the recently rediscovered, previously unpublished book, The Starseed Signals. Thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Ross of Hilaritas Press, and thank you to my co-hosts Greg Arnett and Eric Wagner. Thank you to Dr. Lance Strait, president of the Institute of General Semantics, for setting up this interview, and a big thank you to Dom Heffer for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Reeves, for technical production and music, and episode two on Wilhelm Reich and Reichian therapy will be available the 23rd of next month. I am your host, Mike Gathers, and until next time, amor e hilaritas. The map is not the territory.